Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is November the 7th, 2023, a Tuesday. Uh, judging from the front pages of the world's newspapers, uh, things are pretty chaotic in the world these days. There's wars all over the place, completely out of control, often seemingly illogical wars. Of course, the war in the Middle East, uh, which the New York Times leads with, uh, as well as the Washington Post. Meanwhile, there seems to be a kind of calcification, if you like, of politics in the West, a very old American president and a very old challenger. The Wall Street Journal also covers the war in the Middle East, as well as wars all over the world, especially the Ukraine. Chaos, uh, completely out of control. The rules of the old order seem to be undermined. It all, of course, brings to mind the great uh, 17th century English philosopher Thomas Hobbes and his great work, Leviathan. Uh, a book about modernity, a book about moving away from this chaos that uh, Hobbes, as he acknowledged in Leviathan and his other work, was so terrified of. Hobbes believes that we are driven by fear. One man who has a particular interest in chaos and fear and Hobbes is my guest today. Uh, he's infamous and famous. John Gray is one of uh, Britain's leading political philosophers and certainly one of its great critics of liberalism. And he has a new book out, the New Leviathans, Thoughts After Liberalism. I'm not entirely sure when it was written, John, but I'm guessing every time you open the newspaper, you're you're scratching your head and thinking, how did I get it so right? <laughs> well, as you indicated, Andrew, in your introduction, I've been writing about the weaknesses or limitations of liberalism for a very long time. Um, so that um, uh, in a passage I quote in my new book, The New Leviathans, I wrote in um, 30 years ago in uh, 1992 or 93 that I thought liberalism could come unstuck in the United States uh, by conflicts of rights which were not um, uh, uh, reconcilable and which um, would lead to a struggle for control of the Supreme Court. So um, many years ago when I wrote that, I thought that um, the judicial process in the US would be um, uh, become an object of political capture, would, would in effect become a, a weapon in political struggle. And when I wrote that, of course, um, practically all liberals thought it was wildly pessimistic and uh, extremely improbable. But of course, that did come about over a long period, and especially in the Trump administration, which appointed uh, uh, conservative judges who issued um, uh, um, opinions on issues uh, such as abortion. So I've been criticizing um, um, the weaknesses of liberalism uh, for a long time. I also did in 1989, I might, might mention, um, uh, in a, uh, uh, an article I've reprinted, and it's also mentioned in, in my new book, um, I criticized the Francis Fukuyama thesis, which came out originally in the summer of 1989 in a magazine. 
uh, that's it. Uh, are we at the yeah, end? Yeah, and Fukuyama was on the, the show last week, uh, yes. uh, not last week, last year. He has a new book out, Liberalism and yes. its, its Contents. John, do you associate, you describe yourself, I think, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, as a critic of liberalism. Yes. Do you associate modernity and liberalism? How, how would you define liberalism? What does the word mean? Uh, I think uh, liberalism is one of the uh, great political um, ideologies of, of, of the modern period. So, of course, so is Marxism. And um, uh, so are some of the big right-wing uh, and ultra-right ideologies. Nazism was a 20th century phenomenon, not a... 12th century or 13th century phenomenon. So there's a whole variety of them. But I guess in Britain and America and parts of Europe and the Anglosphere, um, liberalism has been, versions of it have been the dominant um, uh, um, pattern of ideas, the pattern of political thinking for um, the last few hundred years. And um, so I guess it is, if we're coming to the end of that, as I uh, think we probably are, um, uh, that's quite a big change. I mean, if liberalism has been more or less successful despite world wars and civil wars um, of the kind that Hobbes wrote about, because Hobbes did write about war, but mainly about a civil war of the kind he'd himself lived through and experienced, um, um, then it's, it's a strong claim to say that um, liberalism is... Um, uh, running out of tune. I should say that um, and this might illuminate something for your uh, listeners. Uh, uh, I left academic life in 2007 um, uh, after 10 years at the London School of Economics and 20 years before that at, uh, in Oxford and also Harvard and Yale for periods. And the last course I took was one I'd created myself called Liberal Critics of Liberalism. <laughs> and I included a number of 20th century thinkers um, that I'd known, in fact. But I guess I could be called a liberal critic of liberalism because to the extent that I take my cue from Hobbes, and I criticize some of his ideas as well quite strongly, um, um, it's uh, I'm a liberal in the way that he was. So, I mean, you could say, well, what was liberalism or uh, what is is liberalism still or what's still living in it? Well, I guess it's a number of things, but the, the big thing is that no one is entitled to rule by divine right or by intelligence or by being of a certain race or a certain class or a certain anything. Um, rule, uh, government, the state serves um, the human animal, serves the human individual in the end. Um, and I guess that's the foundational liberal principle, which or idea which distinguishes liberalism from medieval political theory or, or from Marxism or from f fascism. Or from, and to that extent, I am criticizing Hobbes, uh, who I think is the, is the, probably the first great liberal um, thinker. The word liberal, he didn't use the word liberal in that sense. That only came into being in the... Um, in his present use in the early 19th century in various constitutional struggles in Spain. But I think he's widely recognized by historians of political thought as uh, um, uh, maybe almost the primordial liberal thinker. And since I share some of his key ideas, particularly that idea about no one having an entitlement to rule, um, then I am a liberal. But one of the important things which distinguishes that liberalism from some later forms is that there are later forms of liberalism 
which say that really the most intelligent people or the most knowledgeable people um, are the ones who should rule. And I reject that just as I reject Plato's political philosophy in which he thought that philosophers should rule. I think philosophers should stay on the sidelines and make various critical or skeptical observations. They should never try and rule. Do you think you have an obligation? You're, you're a great critic. Some, some critics of your critique mm. suggest that you don't have a coherent philosophy. And I, I've read a lot of your books and I mm. love them, but sometimes one scratches one's mm. head and says, we know what this guy's against. We're not mm. entirely sure mm. what he's for. I'm not asking you to tell me what mm. you're for, but do you think mm. that's a fair criticism? Do you sometimes read other people and think, wow, that, that's a good criticism, but what exactly are they for? Um, well, I'm not, you see, I think it's a, criticism which many people make and um, I can understand it uh, because what they're looking for is something that I don't think exists and I'm not therefore planning to uh, provide. They want universal solutions. They want a universal ideology such as the one they themselves believe in or have doubts about or gave up. They're disillusioned or disappointed. They've given up some ideology or belief system, Christianity, Marxism, liberalism, whatever it is, and they want to replace it by another one. Um, um, I think there are in ethics and politics, especially politics, there are no uh, uh, um, uh, valid or legitimate or uh, defensible universal solutions or, or theories. I mean, I've often said, and this never seems to, so to speak, um, sink in when I say it, because it goes so much against the grain of many people's thinking, I say uh, politics is not a universal project for human emancipation or uh, human freedom or improving the human lot. Politics is a, is a succession of temporary and partial remedies for recurring human evils. And as the evils change their shapes and configurations, so the solutions, the partial and temporary solutions should also change. So back in the 70s in Britain, I was opposed to the type of capitalism that existed at that time, which was failing, which was actually going bankrupt. The whole country almost went bankrupt in 1976. And at that time, I, I was on the um, uh, conservative right, the Thatcherite right. I knew her slightly and so on. And so people say, mind you, people, <laughs> 50 years later, uh, they say, aren't you inconsistent 50 years later when now you criticize capitalism, now you criticize globalization? Well, they can think that if they want. I'm not really interested in defending myself against them or justifying what I said to them. Uh, but I think it illustrates a, um, um, a misunderstanding on their part, both of what I'm saying and an error even on their part, which is they think there is some political ideology or set of political idea ideas which can be applied right across history, right across all different societies in different times and generations. I've never believed that and I don't believe that, that now. What, what a political thinker should do is try and identify the worst evils of their time and, and support, not in detail, but prescribe or talk in general terms of some kind of uh, partial remedies for those evils. And if they live long enough, as I've done, uh, that, was seven, that was 50 years ago, the world will have changed quite a bit, as indeed it has changed. And it is changing, as you said, right at the start um, and uh, you know, by the day. So I think it's, it's uh, people who say this about my work, are in a sense true from the, it's what they say is true from their point of view, but that's because they believe something is possible, a universal political a solution, a universal 
a way of getting on what they think of as the bandwagon of history or the, the arc of justice or all this uh, these other ideas, all of which I think are nonsense. Whereas what I'm doing is trying to identify the predominant evils of a particular time, in this case ours, and say, well, what could be done at the margins, at least, to to mitigate them or alleviate them. That's it's a different it's a different way of thinking about politics. We are speaking with John Gray, uh, one of Britain's leading political thinkers, philosophers, mm -hmm. writers, troublemakers. He has a new book out, a particularly mm -hmm. troublesome and intriguing book, uh, "The New Leviathans." John, you talk about rejecting this arc of history. But this history repeats itself. Reading your book, um, The New Leviathans, I was struck with how much stuff there is in the book on 19th century Russia. And it's always mm. seemed to me in America, in living mm. in America in the early 21st century, mm. that, there, that, that there are a lot of things about this country which mm. remind me of 19th century Russia, this new Good. aristocracy, Good. the intolerance Good. in the universities, the... Yeah. Uh, uh, instability of the dominant political class. Mm. Why did you choose in this book to write so much about 19th century Russia? For exactly that reason, Andrew. There are not many people, you're one of the very few who I've talked to since my book was published in Britain, and I've talked to quite a few who've made the comment you just have made, because either they don't even mention the fact that large parts of the book are about late 19th century Russia, or they think the comparison of the modern West or of modern America with late 19th century Russia is ridiculous or absurd. Whereas, as you've just said, there are comparisons. Uh, there are clear analogies. Mm. Um, there are some things that were dis distinctively or peculiarly Russian about 19th century Russia. It's a different, very has a long and different history. But there are other things that um, uh, are uncommon, and you mentioned some of them: uh, a general discrediting of the political establishment uh, of the whole regime, in this case, the old Romanov regime, a highly radicalized and quite numerous um, university graduate class, which was deeply alienated from the, um, um, the regime and uh, um, flirted with or actually implemented various ideas of revolution and even of um, terrorism. Of course, what destroyed the uh, czarist uh, uh, um, regime uh, um, wasn't so much these ideas. Uh, it was the First World War. But once the czarist regime was weakened by a variety of wars, as America has been done, by the way, although it hasn't lost one as spectacularly as um, the czarist regime uh, did in uh, 1905 when the czarist fleet was destroyed by Japan and then in the, the First World War. But but again, that that is another analogy because the history of the last, oh, I don't know, maybe um, since um, the Vietnam War and including the Vietnam War, and certainly up till now in Iraq and uh, 20 years in Afghanistan and so on. There's been a succession of wars uh, fought by or led by in America, wars of choice, all of which have ended in failure. Uh, a disastrous failure. And America, I think, has been greatly weakened by that. So I think, as you do, that there are parallels and affinities. And therefore, we can learn something, not that the lessons will be adopted by <laughs> politicians or leaders, but readers of the book, individual readers of the book, and I myself, when thinking about these late Tsarist period, th uh, came to the conclusion that one, one could learn quite a lot about the situation we're in now. It's, it's not an exact repetition, of course, of um, what went before, never happens. But as Mark Twain said, history doesn't 
uh, repeated itself exactly, but it does rhyme. And I think there are some rhymes going on now, and it would be useful for anyone who wanted to know the kind of world we're in and perhaps think about the near future to know what these rhymes are. And I wonder in particular, given these two uh, Hobbesian style wars going on at the mm. moment, one in Ukraine and the other mm. one in Gaza, mm. uh, where Americans supporting one and opposing mm. the other, uh, and when they, they seem to be identical wars on many in many mm. ways, um, it, it reveals the profound hypocrisy of the state. What is it about 19th century mm. Russian aristocracy and early 21st mm. century British, uh, US aristocracy or mm. maybe Anglo-American aristocracy mm. That, um, that people are so intolerant of hypocrisy? I know there are political philosophers mm. like Dave, my old friend David Runciman. He seems to be mm. somewhat sympathetic to hypocrisy. Mm. What mm. is it about hypocrisy that brings out such mm. anger in these new elites and in the old elites of 19th century Russia? Well, I mean, as you may be suggesting, Adi, there was a time when hypocrisy was just another different word for diplomacy. I mean, nobody expected uh, uh, in the 19th, much of the 19th century, uh, the early 19th century uh, the period of Talleyrand and Metternich and so on, they were supposed to be um, hypocritical uh, because they weren't held to these high standards and they didn't represent but also they didn't represent themselves in such grandiose terms i mean you've got to remember that um um the uh, uh i think george bush george bush jr not george bush senior a much more serious figure talked about ending tyranny in the world you remember that yeah uh, completely and ridiculous absurd nonsensical if you start with something so transparently absurd and then wage a terrible war or a succession of terrible wars to achieve that absurdity, which cost enormous amounts of money, treasure, and also lives, the lives of Americans and far more lives of those in the people in the country you're supposedly ending tyranny in, then the fact, I think what makes um, people intolerant of hypocrisy is the grandiosity of the claims that governments make nowadays, which they didn't make to the same extent in the earlier part, at least of the of the, of the, of the 19th century. Though, of course, then there was the First World War, which was the war to end all wars, so it was told. And there was uh, the breakup of the European empires in Europe, um, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, along with uh, a more civilized empire, much more than the Roman Empire, but they, uh, and the Ottoman Empire also broke up. They all bro broke up. And we were supposed to then be moving into an era of national self-determination and civic nationalism and so forth. And what we got instead in Europe, Central Europe, and other parts of Europe was eth ethnic cleansing on a large scale, um, um, which is, of course, returned at many points in the 20th and now the 21st century. So I think the, the intolerance of hypocrisy is um, natural, if you like, or, or a very understandable reaction to... Um, um, the uh, uh, false sublimity, if you like, the grandiosity of these, of what politicians say they're doing um, um, uh, and trying to do. And when, you know, it can be seen, it can be seen in advance that they can't achieve. It could be seen in advance by me and other people, quite a few other people, that what was attempted in Iraq was actually not just unlikely, but completely impossible. That's to say there, was, there were no background institutions for democratic government. It was a state that had been cobbled up by British imperialists in a way that couldn't be democratic and that they didn't, they knew it couldn't be democratic. If you knew one page of history about the foundation of Iraq, if you thought about, if you thought about 
what would be done after the war for more than five consecutive minutes, you wouldn't have invaded. <laughs> but they didn't do that. They should have uh, come they... and listened to John Gray. We are no. speaking. Yeah. They come and talk to me too. I could have told yeah. them. I think many yeah. people could have. Uh, lots of lots have. Lots of people probably did tell them, but they yeah, they're not very good listeners, are they, John? No. Um, we are speaking with John Gray, the author of the New Leviathans. By the way, people watching this won't see John. He doesn't have a camera, so we have a, a nice, appropriately fuzzy green screen for him. There's nothing wrong with your cameras. Uh, I want to thank our sponsor of this particular show. I'm Jason Pack. And I'm Alex Hall Hall. And this is Disorder, a brand new podcast from Goalhanger, where we'll be connecting the dots using our own experiences, as well as talking to people at the forefront of global affairs. All seeking to work out why are the world powers no longer coordinating as they once did? How did we get here? What can we do to fix it? The Disorder podcast is out now. Make sure you follow us so you can get every episode right now in your feeds. And the Disorder podcast is extremely mm. good. I think even John Gray. I don't, John, do you listen to podcasts? Yes, I do. Some of them. Well, yes. I think I you'll have... enjoy that one. It's very good because good. It, it deals with this disordered world. So we know who we shouldn't be reading or listening to, George Bush, senior or junior. Who should we be reading in addition to John Gray? I was uh, pleased that Pareto pops up in your book. I've always thought he's a, a somewhat underrated philosopher, maybe yes. a, an early 20th century version of John Gray upset everybody, but intrigued everyone simultaneously. Why should we be looking back at Pareto, perhaps? Well, he had one thing in common with me, which is that he loved cats. I think he had about 18. <laughs> he lived uh, in he Switzerland, right? He, I, I think he... He what? I think he lived in Switzerland. No, he lived in Italy. He did for a while, perhaps, but he lived yeah. mostly mostly in um, in Italy. Um, he had another thing which I've never had. Another feature I have I've never had, which I hope never to have. Which is he, it was a time of danger in the twenties and thirties when he uh, uh, um, used to lecture. He used to, I read that he used to sometimes carry a gun with him when he went to, went to lecture. I've never had to do that. I hope I never do. But um, there are some things. Yes, he said he was an atheist regarding all religions. And when he said that, Pareto, he meant not just the traditional religions of monotheism in, in Europe and elsewhere, but um, secular religions, religions of communism and liberalism. And, for example, um, he said he was uh, a nationalism, too, actually. Um, he said he was an atheist regarding all of them, which is he didn't believe in them. And he thought they were uh, rationalizations of power struggles in society, which, of course, is a rather Hobbesian view. So, yes, I quite like him he's sometimes been uh, accused of tilting towards fascism in the interwar period um uh, maybe he did and i certainly wouldn't like that but um his position i think you'd almost describe him as a kind of um stoical or uh, awkward <laughs> or contrarian liberal which is that he continually insisted on how the state had certain important functions, but they didn't include, and they were vital, those functions, law and order among them, but there were others too. But it didn't include saving humanity. It didn't include uh, um, promoting universal progress. It didn't include any of these gigantic and actually religious, secular religious goals that people have attached to um, states in, 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 in his time and, and, and subsequently. So, uh, yes, I have something. I don't share everything. And I'm not actually quite as cynical as he was. I think the situation is... That would be hard, I think, to be as cynical <laughs> as correct. Well, there's that Italian tradition. You noted that liberalism is 
premised on the idea that no one has the right to rule. Yes. But how does that square with Pareto's observation of elites that hmm. where any any time in history there are always the 80-20 rule? There's always 20% of people who have the money, the power, mm. the politics, mm. the cultural mm. power, which got taken up by the, the Italian left too. It did, yes. Can that square with liberalism? I mean, was Pareto anti-liberal in, in terms of his sociological claim to sort of a universal very good question, sociological I mean, observation? Very good question. I mean, you could say that, you might say his sociology rendered liberalism impossible, or but you could also say that it just meant he was very realistic about the limits to which even a rather restrained liberalism could be taken. I mean, um, the reason, by the way, I'm not as cynical as he is, is not necessarily a very optimistic reason. I think he assumed that, um, uh, not assumed, said more or less, wrote that all the ideologies, including liberalism, were um, uh, rationalizations for the particular interests, career interests, material interests, power interests of these elites and that these elites circulated. New elites came along and old ones faded out, but that there always would be these elites, as you said, the, the iron law of oligarchy, it's sometimes called, which was taken up on the left as a, a theme um, uh, and on the right, as you as you also say. But I'm in a, in a way more, um, I think, pessimistic than that, because I think the trouble with <laughs> uh, human beings, even uh, elites, is that they sometimes come to believe their own rationalizations, and it's then that they do the most harm. Uh, so that if you were, I mean, if, if I had, God forbid, had to live in, in the Soviet Union at any point, um, I would probably have picked the Brezhnev period when it was um, corrupt, uh, thoroughly corrupt, uh, but sort of relatively peaceful. I certainly wouldn't have picked early Bolshevism or Stalinism, um, uh, because lots Lots of people, including I think even Stalin himself, did believe in versions of the ideologies they were promoting and didn't simply use them as means towards their own power. And I think, by the way, that that also happened to the liberal elites in the 21st century. I think I don't think that the wars which have semi-destroyed America's position in the world over the last um, 20 years or so, I don't think they were launched by just corrupt cabals of arms manufacturers and uh, uh, Washington interest groups. I think they did represent, did express absurd uh, uh, um, beliefs and delusions that people really had. I forget who it was now, but someone, uh, one of the, um, you might be able to identify uh, the person question. There was someone who was asked um, in the George Bush administration, a spokesman, about um, uh, uh, um, whether the position whether what they were doing is realistic he said he said look you 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 people in the so-called reality community don't matter at all we can write reality now we can create it we'll go along well i think he really must have believed it at least for a moment and at least for long enough to participate in the disastrous wars they really believed i think there were lots of people who really believed that afghanistan and uh uh, uh, Iraq and um, uh, later Libya could be turned into some kind of version of Western liberalism. They really believed that, I think. And that's much worse than Pareto cynicism. Much worse. Because um, Pareto cynicism just implies that they were all developing these, as some, no doubt many people were, but the actual key players in a lot of these disaster, 21st century disasters did believe in what they were doing. That's Although far Pareto says yeah. that the elites believe in it, he doesn't 
it doesn't see he's a cynical thinker but he's not his analysis of elites isn't particularly mm. cynical he believes that they they convince mm. themselves of their mm. righteousness oh they do but i think he he doesn't um he does say that but he he doesn't like give enough room to the fact that elites can destroy themselves and often mm. have by believing in their own rationalizations that's a different thing it's not just that they believe in them and therefore can represent them in a in a convincing way it's that they go to their ruin that and that that i think happened to the czarist elites and i'm i argue that it could be happening to some of the liberal elites now they really believed that um um globalization would succeed and they would get richer and richer and i mean what's a testimony to this belief yes here's a, an example which is not to do with war or uh, russia um in britain uh, um large large numbers of people almost everybody actually including even those who supported it were very surprised by the decision to um by the result of the referendum on brexit which went mm in favor of brexit just as in uh, america by the way i was in in new york um on the uh, I, immediately after uh, uh, the news broke that um um trump had won and that was a similar moment which is that uh, you can't be in new york and without having most of the people you meet being um liberals of some kind or other and uh, the ones i met were uh, all completely horrified uh, completely hardly single one had thought that it was even possible and so that led that in fact it was a sort of interesting moment for me because i think it's the first time i had been in a mass in, in, immersed in a mass political psychosis because <laughs> they were all saying well it's the russians who did it, it must be no it, yeah. couldn't be, it couldn't be anything about american society couldn't be anything about it's rather like um yeah. this i don't know if you've been following the sam bankman fried story but i have you, yes i have very but uh that that, that seems a, a wonderful parable of your critique of liberalism the, the mother who teaches at stanford law school who refuses to acknowledge that her son is capable of lying meanwhile he stole billions of dollars talking of living in late brezhnev russia um john isn't america the equivalent now isn't Joe Biden, the equivalent of Brezhnev, a uh, gerontocrat, so half dead, wheeled out by his supporters. <laughs> he does well. Um, it's maybe, yeah. It's not exactly the same because I suppose um, Brezhnev was followed by uh, Gorbachev, who tried to reform the system and failed. And then there was um, Yeltsin, who was a raging drunk and uh, and uh russia became semi-anarchical and then putin the original reformist authoritarian pragmatist putin who sort of nationalized crime if you like and uh brought a degree of stability to the system but there is a sort of um comparison there's definitely a feeling uh, well, I, I mean i used to i lived in america on and off for 16 years for several months of each year and so i used to until the early 90s i used to live in new york or San Francisco, um, uh, and for a while I had a went to think tanks in other places, including um, New Orleans. So I used to know it quite well, um, but I haven't been. I have been quite a lot since then, but I haven't quite lived there the, the way I did. So I don't have a feel for the American political uh, atmosphere, climate, as, as I perhaps acquired something of or a little bit of then, as far as a foreigner can. Um, but I do. There's an there's an end of regime feel not uh, not only in uh, about america now not only in respect of biden 
who, despite his frailings, I think has actually handled some of the stuff that the the, the wars in um, in the war in Ukraine and in um, in the Middle East now sort of reasonably well. I mean, I'm not sure there was any brilliant strategy which he could have implemented which would have made things that much better. I think he's had done pretty well. But there's nonetheless a um, a feeling of ancien regime because here's my thought about it, um, uh, which is which said that whoever wins the next election, whether it's Biden or some six, some successor of Biden, if Biden does stand down, or Trump, if Trump does win uh, the election uh, and uh, does become the nominee, which I'm sure he will, uh, and uh, then wins, it's unclear what would happen. But whatever, ha whatever, whoever gets in, right, there will be a, a, a substantial, serious crisis of legitimacy of American legitimacy because something about between a, something between a quarter and a third of the population. Um, of, of voters won't accept the outcome as legitimate. Uh, if 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 um, Trump wins, Biden has already said he would regard that as a challenge to democracy. He's already said that. If um, Biden wins or a Democrat wins, Trump will declare that it was rigged, just as he still declares the last election was rigged. Um, so basically, it is a very serious moment in American history in that we've gotten to the point at which there will be a crisis of legitimacy, whatever happens. It's rather, it's a sort of a, a mini version of the American university where no one accepts the, <laughs> the, uh, the opinion of anyone else. What do you make of, we've had lots of shows, John, about yeah. Yeah. what some people are calling the canceling of the American mind. Yeah. You predicted it um, uh, uh, in, your, in this new book, uh, mm. I'm quoting, there is an unrelenting struggle for the control of thought and language. Enclaves of freedom persist, uh, but a liberal civilization based on the practice of toleration mm. has passed into history. You write that, and of course, you use the university as exhibit mm. A on this. Mm. Mm. Um, can this be saved, or is this just a, a reflection of the, the collapse of liberalism? I don't think it's just a collect a, a, a reflection because the 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 intellectual trends that produced the collapse of liberalism did begin in universities. I mean, other things have produced the collapse of liberalism, such as real world events like these useless, catastrophic wars, which have um, were wars, according to those who promoted them, and I think to some extent really were, to promote some version of liberal democratic values, and to the extent that they've repeatedly and disastrously failed, even after 20 years, as in, um, as in Afghanistan. Those events played a profound role, but insofar as we're thinking of intellectual causes for, for the uh, uh, collapse of liberalism, they did occur predominantly within um, uh, in universities, and universities have became intolerant and censorious before other institutions did. I mean, now all institutions have pretty well all have become, we still have podcasts like the one I'm speaking on, I'm happy to say, an enclave of freedom and of uh, free inquiry. <laughs> but you tell, uh, I'm sure you tell all the girls that, John. <laughs> I think it's true. Uh, but um, there are a few in Britain too, to which I contribute and, uh, and I'm happy to work with. But um, um, uh, uh, now, not just universities, but museums, um, charities, um, pretty well all the institutions of civil society are censorious and police their members in various ways, their beliefs and values. And this, by the way, is a very important respect in which the 21st century differs from the last century, because in the last century, 
what might be called intellectual repression or even totalitarianism was always pr pretty well always the product of states, governments, right, right, di right, right, di di dictators. I traveled quite a bit in communist Europe when it still existed, and the the repression of intellectual life there was entirely pretty well the, the result of um, the Soviet occupation and the communist regimes. When they were gone, everything came out. And even when they were there, if you went and had a few glasses of vodka with people who you could trust and who trusted you, you'd find they would quite quickly <laughs> reveal that they didn't believe a single word of what they said in public otherwise, that they had to do it, not only for threats to their own careers and their own freedom, but to the family, to the well-being of their families. Them, mothers, their fathers, their children, their grandchildren, if they deviated from the line, these other people whom they loved and um, were deeply attached to would end up losing their medical care, not being able to go to university, uh, losing their housing and so on and so forth. So, But that was a product of um, uh, dictatorship. And the, and the intriguing and to my mind almost comical feature of repression today in universities and elsewhere is that it's self-imposed. Governments haven't done it. It isn't Bush who's done it. it. Isn't it? Wasn't even Trump that did it. It was there in all these institutions before then, and is there now, and will probably outlast whoever wins the various democratic elections in 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 in, in, in liberal countries. So that's so it's 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 a transformation of society which started in universities, not in a dictatorial state, and has spread. I mean, the campus is become everywhere if you like that is spread uh, right throughout um, all these all these other institutions including of course of course the media which is much more politicized and um, uh, than it used to be I mean there used to be a time when you could open a newspaper and get straight reportage for example you know what was happening at, in particular places what what people uh, saw and heard and and so on and there was never pure facts because perhaps there are never unvarnished facts but it was relatively straight reportages not much of that now it's always uh, uh put through an ideological filter uh, and it's always mixed with a lot of moralizing and um i think uh, and that doesn't come from the government the pravdas the, the, the truth-telling communist uh, newspapers um, were uh, state organs. The pravdas of today have just taken it upon themselves to be to be pra uh, pravdas, and so that so it's a rather profound. And in some ways, even though I've been reflecting on it for the last few years or even longer, it's a rather mysterious. Uh, yeah, it's uh, mysterious. But what do we what would Orwell make of it? We've done some shows recently <laughs> on Orwell. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, particularly uh, on his wife and his attitude. Yes. To, I, I don't know if you've read this new book, Julia, which yes, uh, yes, yes, is I a have. sort of an implicit critique of Winston yes. Smith. And in nineteen eighty four, of course, suggested as the old Eastern Europe that that you couldn't get inside us. That was the attempt of Big Brother to get inside Winston Smith yeah. Yeah. in Room One Hundred One. He didn't yeah. really succeed. The ministries yeah. in in, eight, in 1984 yeah. were all external. The ministries of mm. peace, plenty, mm. truth, love. Mm. They were all run by the state. Are you suggesting that we've internalized them, that these ministries now, John, exist within all of us? That's the new Pravda. That's what's uh, that's what's limiting any kind of freedom. Of that's expression. a good that's a, that's a very good way of putting it, Andrew. And again, I can contrast that with um the communist bloc. When I used to visit there, there was one writer above all that uh people in communist dominated countries loved before any other, and it was Orwell. 
because uh, he described this uh, state apparatus of truth, I, in other words, lies, of peace, in other words, war, uh, of um, ignorance, of, of knowledge, in other words, uh, ignorance. He, he described it perfectly, but he described it in a way which suggested what was true in the um, communist bloc, which is that it didn't get inside anyone's heads very much. Uh, uh, there were practically no believers, at least by the time I got started going there in the 70s, and so there weren't any left. Um, 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 and there probably hadn't been in the Soviet, former Soviet Union for, for, for a long time. So you described that very well, but we're now in a situation which I think Orwell did not envision, as you as you're, you're rightly suggesting. It may be partly a byproduct of the uh, what we have now is partly a byproduct of um, the new the um, uh, new technologies, uh, Twitter and uh, other social media, the immediacy that they that they they have, the ubiquity that they have for certain people. Although lots of people still don't use them, but lots lots do. It may be partly a function of technology, or it may be a function of something deeper, which is that um, the people in the former communist blocs retained. Um, most of them, um, their pre-communist worldview, belief system, and moral uh, uh, values. They, if they were Catholics, they became Catholics. If they were Eastern Orthodox, if they were Jewish, if they were Muslim, if they were secular humanist liberals, they mostly retained those retained those views. Whereas in the in the in the West now, um, in Western countries, I'm not convinced that there are that there is an underlying belief system that. Um, these censorious people um, uh, uh, have. Uh, I think what they have is a sort of vacuum inside themselves. There's nothing in there which is being concealed. There's simply, a, a, for the sake of their career or, or whatever, um, they may self-censor themselves somewhat if they come from an older generation, but among the younger uh, woke uh, wokeists or what I call hyper-liberals in the book, I don't think there's much there uh, at all, and that's a fundamental difference. That's a it's, it's a fundamental difference from uh, from, and that enables. It's one of the things that enables um, institutions to 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 police themselves. They don't. Yeah, the policing them. of themselves. I, I want to come back to that with Hobbes. Yeah. Finally, I've got one more question, and then a final yes. question, John, because you've been very yes. generous with your time. Not a bit. It seems as if Orwell's centralized ministries have mm. been privatized. You you were yeah. a big fan of, of Hayek and of Mrs. Mm. Thatcher, then you turned against them all. You're also a big critic, of course, of, of Steven Pinker. Mm. Um, mm. And there's a, a, a technological version of Steven Pinker is uh, Mark Andreessen. I'm not sure if you're familiar with his work. I am, yes, I am. He just on a, on a, AI and so on. He's right, the techno-optimist manifesto that's had a big <laughs> impact out here on the West Coast. But I wonder... In terms of the privatization of all those Orwellian mm. ministries, centralized mm. ministries of state, truth, mm. we always make a lot about that. Mm. But whether it's the privatization of the ministry of plenty and the promise mm. of people like Andreessen mm. that with AI, no mm. one will have to work. Is that something <laughs> that perhaps we should be most fearful of in, in, in this sort of hyper Orwellian yeah. century? It's the thing we should most laugh at. I wouldn't hmm. say fear because it's it's completely absurd. Um, uh, that's not the way any technology has ever worked. I mean, I can. I mean, I'm I'm older. I'm, I, I, when I was at university, we didn't even have photocopying machines. We used to write down what we read in books on bits of paper with pencils. Uh, but if you go ahead a, a bit further to the time in which um, videos 
video cameras and uh, came in and, and also even fax machines if anyone remembers what they were i remember when people were saying in the 70s and 80s this will end this will end tyranny and atrocities because they said no you know no government which no dictator which knows its atrocities are being filmed uh, uh, will perform the atrocities. And um, then you had Tiananmen Square, uh, um, which was actually, I've been told, I've not verified this, but I've been told by people who knew China that at that time that, that, that actually the filming of the crushing of the student rebellion there by tanks and uh, state forces was um, propagated right throughout China. It wasn't covered up. It was propagated to, to show what would happen if anyone else tried to say. So there's always a view, which it repeats itself over and over again, um, that technology will be uh, in, is somehow in principle liberating and somehow it, it promotes um, uh, um, human freedom. Whereas the truth of the matter is that it is either morally um, uh, neutral or ambiguous and could be used for good and bad purposes, or even more maybe that it has a kind of logic of its own which is independent in many cases of um, human well-being. I mean, so for example, people who now say, included, I think, even Elon Musk, who's often thought of as a libertarian, said, we've, we've got to regulate AI. If we, if we don't regulate AI, it'll get out of control and start um, disobeying human instructions. And so, but I always ask this question, who's we, you know, uh, in this? Does we include all the regimes in the world? Does it include um, uh, China? Does it include Putin? Uh, uh, does it include uh, organized crime? Uh, uh, does it include um, uh, um, uh, re religious fundamentalist groups? In Japan, for example, one of the big terrorist um, uh, attempts to attempt to release poisonous uh, uh, bioweapons on um, uh, the Tokyo subway was done by a fundamentalist um, group called AUM, AUM, which had um, recruited, by the way, mainly among graduates and among graduates, mainly among graduates in the life sciences. So it wasn't some bunch of primitives who tried, tried to do this. They were highly educated people. Um, and uh, so, so when people say, we must do this, I always ask, and I think this goes back maybe to my, one of my fundamental points, which might be a way of, um, um, I'll answer any other questions you have, but of summarizing, wrapping up, yeah, yeah, wrapping up, which is that when one of the things Hobbes says is that when people use words in certain ways, they fall into what he calls absurdity, and absurdity is using words that, uh, to describe concepts or uh, to to refer to concepts or abstractions or or generally as if they were real entities. And I think the primary example of that is the word humanity. Humanity exists as a human species and as multitudes of different individuals with different and conflicting values and needs and sufferings and hopes and loves and hates and so on, the humanity in that sense exists. But humanity as an actor, as an agent, as a collective entity doesn't exist and never has existed and never will exist just as there isn't a collective entity, the lion, which goes about unfolding the nature of lions and the history of lionhood. Yeah, there are simply these many lions and or many cats and as someone who loves cats and uh, lived with four cats for uh nearly uh i and my wife for nearly um, 30 years they're all different from each other even they are different even they have separate fate separate fortune separate individualities there's no universal feline really realizing itself or doing anything and similarly with humanity 
it, it doesn't exist. It's 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 an even greater fiction, if you like, than than the than the than the monotheistic god, because the monotheistic god is in a realm uh, at least partly beyond human knowledge. It's a matter of faith, whereas we can know that we, we can't perhaps know that something like uh, a monotheistic god does not and cannot exist, but we can know. Although I'm an atheist myself, but we can know that there's no such thing as humanity as an as an agent and never will be. There'll always be a quarrelsome multitude composed of individuals who are internally full of conflict themselves. That will always be the case. So whenever um, and has always been the case. So whenever people say humanity is going to do this, we are going to do that. Humanity is going to stop the arms war. It's going to um, control AI. It's going to do uh, all these wonderful things, uh, end climate change and so forth. You can be sure that they're totally nonsense. But here's my last point. The way in which most modern human beings find sense in their lives is by immersing themselves in nonsense. Um, that's what absurdity is. Absurdity means finding sense by uh, immersing yourself in nonsense. So it's a very unpopular message and people don't like it just as they didn't like Hobbes. Um, and I'm just a tiny footnote to Hobbes in this respect. But this is one of the aspects of his thought that I wanted to draw attention to in my new book, which is his philosophy of language, which occurs in a section in on Leviathan, which is called Seven Types of Absurdity. And he goes through seven types of absurdity. But they all boil down to treating words as things, to treating concepts as if they're realities, treating general terms like humanity as if they were actually existing entities that could do things. And I'm afraid that kind of uh, um, illusion is probably even stronger today than it was in Hobbes' time.